0: P.F.K. in Los Angeles. This is living in the U.S.A. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Amy Willens on Haitians in Haiti and Joe Biden's disastrous decision to deport those fifteen thousand Haitian refugees who crossed the border at Del Rio, Texas, sending them back to a country ravaged by assassination, earthquake, poverty, and gang violence. Also later in the show, the story of a black writer who moved to Paris in the 50s and discovered French racism aimed at Algerians. Adam Schatz will explain, he's written the introduction to the new edition of a novel called The Stone Face by William Gardner Smith, originally published in 1963 and now out in a new edition from New York Review Books. But first, our Washington political update. Of course, for that, we turn to Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large of the American Prospect, contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today, as usual, at home in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Good to be here. Well, this is crunch time for the Biden agenda and the Democrats in Congress. Failure would be not only humiliating for the president, but would cripple the party's candidates in the midterm elections, which are now less than a year from now. The latest bad news came Sunday from the Senate's parliamentarian who rejected the Democratic proposal to include sweeping immigration provisions in the party's Build Back Better legislation. Uh, The parliamentarian ruled that the provisions about granting permanent residency to the DREAMers did not qualify for those reconciliation budget rules that could allow the bill to avoid a republican filibuster on the other hand at this hour this is tuesday afternoon the headline at fox news is democrats tee up filibuster reform by forcing issue on immigration and voting rights close quote that actually sounds like good news for our side but is it true
1: Uh, Well, if Fox News is saying that, there's no presumption, unfortunately, that it is true. Uh, We will see what's there. There certainly have been reports that on voting rights, uh, the Democrats may get a slight alteration uh, from Senators Manchin and Sinema of their opposition to uh, getting rid of the filibuster. There has been talk that they would substitute a talking filibuster in lieu of simply the Republicans raising their hand to say, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, it's not going to go with us. Uh, It's not clear that if the filibuster goes to uh, a talking mode that that will actually enable the Democrats to pass voting rights, much less immigration. But uh, Right now, there are so many balls in the air on all of this. It is really kind of raining balls here in <laughs> D.C., as well as, as we speak, raining rain uh, in okay. D.C. Um, so uh, we shall we shall see. Um, I mean, there are certainly some Democrats on the Hill who still think that compromises that are decent by progressive criteria may still emerge from... Uh, both sides of the Democratic Party being compelled to come together, to which we can only say, we shall see.
0: Of course, sticking with the, the parliamentarian for a minute, the Democrats could fire the Senate parliamentarian and appoint a new one who would define budget reconciliation more broadly. The Republicans have fired the Senate parliamentarian when they ran into a similar problem. Uh, You know, the basic question here is, should this one person who is appointed, I guess, by Harry Reid, be able to block the Democratic agenda? It doesn't seem very Democratic with a small d. Do you think there's any chance that Democrats would replace her?
1: I think it's a slim chance. A lot of Democrats who are for immigration reform, nonetheless, for reasons that aren't crystal clear, Seem to oppose firing the parliamentarian, who is, ma- whose main function actually seems to be to rule what is in and what is out of reconciliation bills. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 a possibility. But Senator Menendez, who is frequently cited as the senior Hispanic uh, Democrat in the in the Senate, has said that he thinks it's a bad idea and that some other arrangement can be reached. Maybe he was referring to the uh, suspension of the filibuster that Fox News has reported on. Uh, Maybe he was referring to something else. Maybe he was just blowing hot air. Again, the imponderables (laughs) seem to uh, eclipse the ponderables.
0: (laughs) Well, the balls in the air are mostly about what the Democrats are going to cut from what we have called their $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. They call it the Build Back Better bill. A couple of people have suggested that the number $3.5 trillion was created specifically to make a lower number, like $2.9 trillion, seem the soul of reasonableness, because, of course, the United States has never spent $2.9 trillion trillion dollars on early childhood education, family leave, or free college tuition.
1: That's true, although it's definitely worth pointing out and should continually be pointed out that these numbers are the numbers to be spent over a decade. So let us say a $3 trillion reconciliation bill basically comes out to a $300 billion bill every year, which is still eclipsed by, let us say, the Pentagon budget. Yeah. Uh, so it's it, it, it's really just a question of whether the Democrats take seriously these priorities. The other, the other question, as we go from three point five trillion, presumably, to something lower, is uh, a question that my colleague at the uh, Prospect, David Dayan, has raised: Do the Democrats cut a little from everything, and thereby, perhaps? delay or make imperfect the delivery of things that they really care about of childcare and affordable college and more affordable medical care and more affordable prescription drugs, or do they uh, keep intact some things that they particularly want to keep intact, like let's say expanding what Medicare covers and simply zero out uh, other priorities. There's no easy answer to that. Uh, And, you know, even Democrats who are fundamentally in agreement with each other on, uh, on, on the 3.5 trillion bill uh, have personal preferences for one cause or another cause. And so it, 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 it you know, as David Dayan put it, it's kind of a Sophie's choice. Uh, you know, I, I it,
0: think that's going a little too <laughs> far. We're not perhaps, talking about but it's, killing our children here.
1: Well, except that you know, uh, much of this bill goes to uh, uh, preserving the one-year-only uh, uh, child tax credit and uh, making child care affordable. Um,
0: Metaphorical children, in fact.
1: Yes, yes. So you know, um, this is uh, th- this could be a real conundrum, uh, assuming that they can even get. To the point where they have this conundrum before them rather than everything uh collapsing due to the intransigence of a, of a relative handful of uh, conservative democrats
0: but of course this is what politicians do we are often told the art of the possible uh and joe biden has been doing this for 40 years and you know chuck schumer has been doing it for almost as many years and nancy pelosi for almost as many years so they know a lot about how to uh how to resolve these these issues and they also don't need us to tell them how important it is not to fail uh at this uh failure would not only hurt their candidates next year it would fuel the fires under the larger argument that washington doesn't care about ordinary people and their problems which was of course and now that the democrats control both Houses of Congress and the White House. This would make the case that got Trump into the White House stronger. And I think they all are aware of that. And that is a tremendous force leading them towards the art of the possible.
1: Yes, Republicans both run on the failure of Washington and uh, essentially uh, are the personifications of the failure of Washington, yes. which Good. is well put. a neat trick but it's one that Republicans uh, perpetually try to perform. And they're trying again, not only with their uh, adamant opposition uh, to the uh, bill Back Better bill, but with their refusal to uh, you know, uh, lift the debt uh, limit and uh, threaten to put the entire uh, United States into default, which raises a thought, at least it raised a thought uh, by me uh, about 90 minutes ago which is if the Republicans refuse to uh, extend the debt limit uh, and uh, the Democrats, uh, you know, let this go on for a few days in which financial panic will ensue and the government, given the current status of that legislation, which also includes government funding, and the government will shut down, the Democrats then have the recourse of encapsulating it into their Bill Back Better, Reconciliation Bill. Well, now that raises an interesting question for the mansions and cinemas of this world. Do they then uh, feel compelled to support the bill because otherwise financial havoc will ensue? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that's not necessarily a bad strategy uh, at the point at which uh, the stock market plunges a thousand points every 10 minutes uh, you know, uh, do mansion and cinema and their ilk want to join the Republicans in responsibility for that, for throwing Americans out of work and so on and so on and so on. It strikes me as a plausible strategy.
0: I'm nodding. I'm nodding quietly. I see. What yes. You... I'm not
1: sure radio <laughs> listeners actually can see you nodding. So it's a good thing you, you pointed that out.
0: Well, uh, <clears throat> on another front, uh, In your town, Washington D.C., on Saturday, the insurrectionists held a rally on the mall, but nobody came. This was the Justice for J Six rally. J Six is, of course, January sixth. They they supposedly were there to uh, protest uh, the plight of those charged with uh, crimes in the January sixth insurrection who have been, they say, denied. Uh, a speedy and fair uh, trials. Uh, we worried that thousands of people would return, but only, I guess, 40 or 50 or maybe 100 people showed up. What happened? Nothing. <laughs>
1: uh, what, what, what happened was uh, the journalists covering the event and the police who uh, were sort of surrounding the event vastly outnumbered the protesters. I think the protesters realized uh, the kind of groups that would protest at this sort of thing realize that their January 6th success was more or less uh, the result of taking uh, the forces of order by surprise uh, and that if they showed up for this there was no way uh, they would do anything other than uh, stand around and, and quite possibly look more ridiculous than they already are. So most of the groups, like the Proud Boys that had showed up in force on January 6th, told their members to stay away, and they did. Nonetheless, I was struck (coughs) by the press coverage of this non-event. And I think in your hometown uh, and my former hometown of Los Angeles, it was uh, plastered very large on the homepage that uh, there was a rally uh, of... Such protesters outside L.A. City Hall. Of course, there were only about a dozen people there, and you know how much space you give on your homepage or your front page uh, to a demonstration of a dozen people uh, is an editorial decision that uh, probably you know is going to merit one way or another a, a good deal of second guessing.
0: I I saw that e- even though nobody showed up for the uh, insurrectionist rally. Among there were two Republican candidates, Trump candidates in primaries, running for House seats currently occupied by Republicans who voted in favor of impeachment. That that gave it a certain aura of uh, officialdom, I must say.
1: Well, it it, it what it mainly uh, gives is uh, an aura of the extremism of uh, of Trumpism and the Trumpified Republican Party. Um, uh, one, one of the interesting developments, again, uh, sort of a non-development that is therefore a development of the past week, is Trump continuing his attacks on uh, on Mitch McConnell, uh, who uh, is uh, quite independent of Trumpism, a completely loathsome character plunging the United States into uh, vast pools of dysfunction, but Trump was urging Republicans in the Senate to oust McConnell as majority leader, and uh, they didn't uh, because, after all, but for uh, kowtowing to some of Trump's demands, uh, McConnell uh, is an effective leader of a party whose sole agenda is to block the Democrats in doing anything. And so, uh, you know, there, there are certain limits uh, even to the extremes of Trumpism in the Republican Party, but not many.
0: So much for Washington. You reported recently on the news from Oshkosh. That's, of course, in Wisconsin, and the news, and the news is not about Oshkosh Bagash, the clothing company whose clothes I wore when I was a kid growing up in nearby Minnesota. What's the news from Oshkosh?
1: Well, there's another Oshkosh company called Oshkosh Inc. Uh, which is a long time manufacturer of trucks and military vehicles and specialized vehicles. And which has just been given a contract by uh, our U S postal service to build uh, electrified uh, mail delivery vans, which sounds great. Uh, You know, good to see the postal service going somewhat green. On the other hand, uh, Oshkosh, also announced that rather than build these vehicles uh, in some of its plants that are right in and around Oshkosh itself, plants that have been unionized by the United Auto Workers since 1938, it would locate this function, uh, the construction of these electric uh, mail delivery vans uh, in South Carolina, um, Mm. where uh, union avoidance is, uh, is the rule. South Carolina historically ranks either first or second among the states with the lowest rate of unionization. It's traditionally lower than 3% of the workforce. Uh, And so we have the paradox of a company that appears at one level to be fulfilling Joe Biden's uh, uh, mantra of let's uh, go green, let's build it at home, uh, and ignoring the part about with good uh, decent paying union jobs, which is also part of the Biden mantra, but which has uh, been uh, not so mysteriously omitted from what Oshkosh is doing and so the UAW is uh, quite up in arms. Uh, they note that Oshkosh has uh, now found a uh, abandoned a large abandoned warehouse in uh, South Carolina where it will which will convert to this to a factory. And uh, as a UAW vice president said to me earlier this week, they couldn't find an abandoned warehouse in Wisconsin. Wisconsin <laughs> is full of abandoned warehouses. So there you have it. And of course, the, you know there will be, uh, already is, and there will be more, some pressure on uh, the United States Postal Service, which again, thanks to Joe Biden, uh, the Board of Governors of which now has a Democratic majority Uh, to see if they might rethink this award, given that it's uh, certainly a priority that uh, the greening of America not come at the expense of working Americans.
0: Finally, we've been told that American democracy was saved from the insurrectionists on January 6th by one person, especially Dan Quayle. Is this true? Well, it turns out that in the new Bob
1: Woodward and, uh, uh Costa book, Bob Costa book, uh, uh, the story is told that, uh, Mike Pence, who was under uh, significant pressure from president Trump to, uh, at the conclusion of the, uh, announcement of the electoral vote count to throw out the electoral votes from a number of States and, and, uh, essentially throw it back to state legislatures that would somehow mysteriously proclaim that Trump actually won their states. Uh, and uh, somewhat amazingly, uh, uh, Mike Pence decided to put a phone call in to uh, Dan Quayle, who, like Pence, uh, had been elected, an elected official in Indiana and, uh, like, uh, like Pence, uh, had uh, served uh, one term as vice president. Uh, why Dan Quayle was somehow qualified to be the arbiter of what Pence uh, <laughs> should do is, is a mystery. But anyway, uh, Pence called Dan Quayle, uh, who may or may not have been on a golf course at the time, and Quayle told him to forget it. This is a ceremonial role only, and you, you don't really have an option. And in this, uh, in saying that, uh, there's no doubt that Quayle was absolutely right. Uh, fortunately, because if Quayle had said something else, who knows what Mike Pence might have done.
0: But Mike Pence did follow Dan Quayle's advice. He presided over the vote declaring that Joe Biden had been elected president. That makes Dan Quayle the hero of democracy. And of course, Harold Meyerson is another. You can read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always happy to be Lump with Dan (laughs)
1: Quayle.
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We need to talk about Haiti and Haitian refugees. For that, we turn, of course, to Amy Willence. She's been writing about Haiti for a long time, most recently in the award-winning book, Farewell Fred Voodoo. And for the Washington Post, the LA Times, and the New York Times. Of course, she's also a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem bureau chief of The New Yorker magazine. And she's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. She also teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at the University of California, Irvine. We reached her today at home in L.A. Hi, Amy. Hi, John. Well, I always open our Haiti segments with a reminder about why we care, not just because of the misery and suffering of the Haitians now, but because of Haiti's unique history. Haiti had the first successful slave revolution in history. It established the first black republic in the world. It was part of the French Revolution after 1789, even though the French under Napoleon did everything they could to crush the Haitian Revolution and then required Haiti to pay France for their freedom An immense indemnity that took more than a century to repay and goes a lot to explaining the poverty of Haiti ever since. Which brings us to this week's news. 14,000 Haitians crossed the border at Del Rio, Texas in the past week. And now the Biden administration is flying all of them back to Haiti which is still reeling in the aftermath of that big earthquake in August 7.2 on the Richter scale. The whole story is terrible, but first of all, how did all these Haitians get to Mexico? When did they leave Haiti?
2: Well, many of them left many years ago. You can't just traipse uh, 4,000 miles from Haiti to Del Rio in a day. So uh, they're not coming to you direct out of Haiti. They've been walking on foot and taking little jitney buses and um, taking boats and airplanes to Latin America, to South America. And then they walked through the Darien jungle into Mexico and they walked through Mexico up to the Texas border. And then they went to a bridge under Texas. They didn't all come at once at the beginning, but they all gathered together. I'm not sure exactly how that happened because it's a lot of people, 14,000 people. And now they're under an overpass homeless, and being attended to by the Americans.
0: Apparently, the reason that so many of them came in the last week was the news that four months ago in May, Biden's new Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, announced that undocumented Haitians in the United States would be allowed to stay under the legal protection of Temporary Protected Status, TPS. He said, this is Mayorkas... Quote, Haiti is currently experiencing serious security concerns, social unrest, an increase in human rights abuses, crippling poverty, lack of basic resources, which are exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. After careful consideration, we determined that we must do what we can to support Haitian nationals in the United States until conditions in Haiti improve so that they may then safely return home close quote, the Secretary of Homeland Security in May. Now the Biden administration is flying 14,000 people, uh, what, six flights a day for the next three weeks back to Haiti. Are they finding when they get there that conditions have improved since May?
2: Conditions have not improved since May. Obviously, the president was assassinated after that. The earthquake came after that. The um, tropical storms came after that. Nothing has gotten better. The gangs have been basically reinforced, these terrible street gangs who've been kidnapping and massacring for years now. And, you know, not only did Mayorkas offer temporary protected status to Haitians, I guess he wasn't expecting 14,000 at the border, but if he had a mind, he might have been. But beyond that, the U.S. has contributed to the situation in Haiti today. The U.S. has supported two presidents in a row who were of the foulest, in my opinion, type, corrupt democracy destroyers. The U.S. supported the election of these two presidents. These two presidents were not freely and fairly elected. They were elected by very, very small uh, turnout, and the numbers were sort of scrunched and crunched to make them the victors. It's been a disaster uh, for U.S. policy in Haiti, and now they're returning Haitians to that.
0: The prosecutor in Haiti investigating the assassination of the president was about to indict the de facto of leader, leader of Haiti since the assassination, a man named Ariel Henry with a Y. That was last week's news that Ariel Henry was going to be indicted. What's this week's news?
2: He fired the prosecutor. (laughs) Ta-da! So that fixed that. So Ariel Henry was confronted with a lot of turmoil, just political turmoil at that moment when the prosecutor said that the de facto prime minister may not leave the country. And then he announced that he was seeking charges against Ariel Henry in the assassination of Jovenel Moise. That's pretty high crime. Henry denied all guilt, of course, and immediately fired the prosecutor, appointed a new prosecutor who is not asking for charges.
0: You wrote recently in the LA Times that politics in Haiti is, quote, about who will be able to steal the most with the greatest impunity, close quote. But Haiti, of course, is one of the poorest countries in the world. Is there anything there really worth stealing? Yes, I
2: know. Americans always look at Haiti and they think, oh, my God, I'm so glad I don't live there oh, my God, there's nothing there. How do these people live? And that's true of the average Haitian citizen. They live on very little money. Sometimes when I buy something, I hate myself because I'm spending $300 and, you know, an average Haitian family has maybe $450 or $500 a year to live on. So um, there is that when we look at Haiti. But there's also customs and ports And there's import-export in Haiti. There are um, or there were petroleum uh, discounts that put a lot of money in accounts. There was, most importantly, perhaps, in addition to those petroleum uh, uh, supports, there were the relief and reconstruction monies that came in after the 2010 earthquake, which was even more destructive, though not as strong, as the last earthquake we saw in, I think, August. So there's this huge amount of money that was promised to Haiti for that earthquake's reconstruction. And uh, a lot of that money did come in and uh, most of that money disappeared into pockets, There are pockets waiting to be filled in Haiti, and politicians have those pockets, and they would like to bring them up to the presidential level. And that's what we're seeing right now with Ariel Henry holding on to his power. And we don't know about that prosecutor, by the way, or anyway, I don't know. But he may be involved in this whole uh, fight for uh, dominance of the coffers of Haiti, which you all think are empty, but which are empty, they've been emptied.
0: You also wrote that in a very real sense, the US is responsible for what's happening now, having selected two highly corrupt Haitian presidents. You mentioned this a moment ago. We're talking here about Donald Trump?
2: Ah, well, interestingly, no, no, no. We're talking about Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and then uh, follow up. Donald Trump was kind of enthusiastic because he saw, whoa, my Democratic predecessors have put in power two strongmen. And I like strongmen. So he continued the support of these two people, one of whom is now been killed by the violence that he promoted in Haiti. He's now dead in his bedroom, the president. And now they have a, another flunky of the same political party that's been uh, so destructive for Haiti in the past decade.
0: So how do you understand this bipartisan history going back a couple of decades? Biden has continued Trump. Trump continued Obama. They're so different on everything else, but they all seem to be together on Haiti.
2: Yeah. Well, one thing I like to say is some black lives matter, but other black lives just don't matter. And what's interesting to me, too, if this is just a little aside, The Haitian community came out strongly for Biden. They saw Trump. They knew Trump was an enemy. So the Haitian-American community in Florida came out for Biden. Biden needs those people again in Florida for the midterms and for the next presidential election. Will he have them? I cannot say that he will have them after his grotesque continuation of Trump policy. And I believe it's Biden sort of pandering to the uh, white supremacist crowd. I I don't see it any other way. Although, I mean, I do think it's hard to have 14,000 people appear on your border all at once, people of any color, even if they were Italians, even if they were (laughs) Irish, even if they were Ukrainians, you go like, what? So, uh, but there's an element of racism in there without question.
0: Well, what Biden and his people say is what's happening at the border in Del Rio is a humanitarian disaster that we have got to do everything we can to put an end to. There is a lot of truth to that.
2: Yeah, but is the way you do that by lifting them up, sticking them in planes, uh, many of them for the first time in their lives, I think, and then shoveling them back into a poverty stricken country where even to get from the port where you have dumped them, the airport where you have dumped them, to what used to be their house five years ago. They have to run the gamut of gangs. It's very hard to get into Port-au-Prince from the airport, from the port, because the gangs are running the one highway. And so you have to confront heavily armed gangs to get to where you're going. And and these Haitians, a lot of Haitians there, they know what's happening. You know, they go like, don't go to Martinson this week because, da-da. and don't go up to Delma because there's a whatever. But you don't know because you're barely Haitian anymore. And yet this is what you're confronting. I don't think it's the best humanitarian solution for 14,000 people on the border. I think you could even ask Sean Penn, whom I don't always praise, but Sean Penn ran a pretty good Uh, displaced persons camp after the first earthquake in Haiti on a golf course of a tennis club in Port-au-Prince. And it was more than 20,000 people. So I would just say, go ask Sean (laughs) to go down there with his Glock pistol and run it. it. The Haitians know how to build sheds for themselves. They can form a vast encampment there until you process them and see if they have due cause to come to America rather than be shoved back into Haiti, a country I love. And I would love to live there when it was in better condition, but it's not in good condition right now.
0: Of course, Sean Penn isn't alone in this. There's a whole string of international aid groups and NGO that have been working in Haiti since the first earthquake. Are they able to deal with the refugees who are being forcibly returned?
2: Of course. Of course they are. They know how to build refugee camps. They know how to run health and sanitation for refugees. There's an enormous uh, crisis caravan that moves from one country to another, wherever there's a natural disaster, who who know how to deal with this stuff. I only mentioned Sean Penn because he had this really huge one that he had no right to be running, and he still ran it better than what the Americans are about to do right now. Um, I don't blame Biden for being freaked. And then it's Texas, which, as we know, they don't like women in Texas. They don't like black people in Texas. We're a little concerned about having Texas in the union right now. (laughs) It's got a border with Mexico. We could wish that New York had a border with Mexico or that Rhode Island had a border with Mexico. But as it stands, we have Texas and California. They ended up in Texas.
0: Well, the, the most important part of your work on Haiti for me is your reporting on the grassroots groups and civil society organizations that are committed to honest government, groups that are working for real democratic elections right now. What can you tell us about them?
2: They're still doing it. These people are incredible. I mean, they have an interest in taking power for uh, not just for themselves, but for all the people who have been effectively totally excluded from power um, during the past decade. And those people are the Haitian people. And what these groups have done is they've gathered together under an umbrella called the Commission for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis. And indeed it is a crisis. They've now formed like a central committee. I hate to use that term because it seems like it could be socialist and that would be bad. So it's not socialism at all. It is a, a unifying umbrella for grassroots groups like people who work in the shanty towns to uh, bring water in and to bring doctors in, uh, people who teach. Uh, they're commonly called teachers. Unions, yes, it's true. The, the few pathetic, poor, small unions that Haiti still allows. You know, everybody is under this umbrella, really. Doctors, lawyers, all the people whose, whose cohort have been kidnapped during the past 10 years. It's it's a huge group of people, political parties, even, yes, members of the private sector have have spoken to and joined up with this group. And I'm hoping that the United States will finally um, acknowledge that this group exists. That is to say, the State Department, certainly the Haiti caucus in the U.S. Congress has acknowledged it, acknowledged it, supports it. And many, many Haitian Americans in the diaspora also who are a part of this umbrella group. So I think it's a very positive thing. And all along, since the president was assassinated, which was a huge disaster of security for everybody, because as I said, he was killed in his bedroom by his own security people, laxness and running away and allowing the murderers in. Everyone feels terribly insecure in Haiti if the president can be killed and nothing can be done about it. But since The assassination and the earthquake and uh, all that's been going on now, I think it's a moment where if the international community would just open its eyes to Haiti for once, a lot could change now.
0: A lot could change now. If you want to know more about the Commission for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis, you can go to their website, the Commission for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis. Amy Willens wrote about Haiti most recently for the LA Times. Thank you, Amy. This was great.
2: Thanks,
1: John.
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left now it's time to talk about a black writer who moved to paris in the 50s and discovered french racism aimed at algerians adam schatz explains he wrote the introduction to the new edition of a novel called the stone face written by william gardner smith and originally published in 1963 now it's been republished by new york review books adam was the nation's literary editor Now he's U.S. editor for the LRB, the London Review of Books. He also writes for the New York Review, the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, and others. He's also been a visiting professor at Bard and at NYU. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Adam Schatz, welcome back.
3: Thanks so much for having me, John.
0: Well, many famous black writers left the United States for Paris and wrote about it. James Baldwin, probably the best known today, Richard Wright, Chester Himes. William Gardner Smith was another, but who was he? I'm embarrassed to say I'd never heard of him until you got the New York Review to reprint this novel. Uh,
3: William Gardner Smith was a journalist uh, who moved to Paris in 1951 and uh, wrote for the Pittsburgh Courier, worked for Reuters, and uh, had distinguished himself in the late 40s as a, as a young novelist. He, he wrote a book for Farrar, Strauss, and Drew when he was 22 years old, just back from Germany, uh, where he had been with the armed services after the war, a book called Last of the Conquerors, which is a love story about a Black soldier who falls for a German woman, in post-nazi germany and experiences uh, freedom from racism in a country that has just slaughtered millions of its own citizens on racial grounds
0: you quote james baldwin writing that paris saved his life he had left america when he was 24 in 1948 what exactly did he mean
3: i think what 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 james baldwin meant was that in Paris, uh, for the first time in his life, he could experience what it was like to be, to be free to be free from uh, racism, to be free from the white gays, and to just move around in the city as anyone else would. Um, this was what Richard Wright meant when he said that in one block of, in Paris, he uh, had more freedom than he did in the entire United States, whether in the segregated South um, or in the North under conditions of informal discrimination. And you know, many Black Americans had felt similarly, Uh, about Paris, Sidney Boucher, Josephine Baker. uh, There was an embrace of Black American uh, culture among uh, many French people and particularly among French intellectuals like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, Chester Himes. Found uh, a sanctuary in, in Paris as well, and, and began to publish his crime novels there. So when when William Gardner Smith uh, got to Paris, he became part of that circle of Black American writers, which Richard Wright was the king around cafes like the Cafe de Tournon. But Gardner Smith, like a number of younger Black writers, developed uh, a more disillusioned view of what Paris had to offer Black Americans and other people who were not white, notably uh, Alger and other North Africans.
0: So Gardner-Smith arrived in 1951 in Paris, and the Algerian Revolution began at the end of 1954. Remind us a little about the history of the Algerian Revolution and and its supporters in Paris.
3: The Algerian War of Independence broke out in November of 1954 after uh, some 130 years of of uh, French colonialism in Algeria. In fact, uh, Algeria was not even considered a colony, it was considered a part of France It had been annexed and turned into three departments of France. And in uh, November 1954, after many earlier peaceful uh, struggles uh, for freedom and and equality under uh, French rule, The Front de Libération Nationale, the National Liberation Front, declared its existence and carried out a series of of attacks throughout Algeria, and the war uh, for freedom from French rule uh, began. It lasted uh, nearly eight years. It cost hundreds of thousands of lives. It resulted in the fall of the French Fourth Republic, nearly led to civil war um, inside France, and ultimately uh, led to Algeria's emancipation.
0: And how did William Gardner-Smith get involved with Algerians in Paris?
3: Uh, Remarkably, uh, William Gardner-Smith was very much attuned to the oppression of Algerians in Paris, before the war began, he was reporting on it. He wrote about Algerian peddlers peddlers and and, and poor Algerians and the discrimination they faced. I'm not sure uh, when exactly he began to sympathize with the Algerian revolt, but it seems to have occurred fairly early after the war began.
0: And in this, he differed from the other prominent black writers in Paris. There was a
3: great deal of sympathy for the Algerian struggle among Black writers, Black American writers in Paris. Baldwin, Richard Wright, Chester Himes, I think all felt uh, sympathy, if not outright support for the Algerians, but none of them uh, openly uh, declared it. And uh, the reason uh, was quite simple. There was fear of being expelled from France. So in a sense, their, their, their freedom was highly contingent. They, they had to respect that taboo. And William Gardner-Smith, of course, published a novel that violated that taboo two years after,
0: but still, uh, it was quite a brave act. So, this is the, the biographical facts. In the novel, how does our protagonist, Simeon Brown, uh, come to engage with the Algerians? Is it pretty much autobiographical? I'm not sure
3: how autobiographical uh, the story is, but, but there are elements in Simeon Brown's history that echo um, incidents in William Gardner Smith's own life. William Gardner Smith um, grew up in, in South Philadelphia. He grew up in a, in a poor neighborhood um, where by the time he was in his teens, he had suffered police brutality and uh he said that the reason that he left the united states was that he feared that if he stayed he would end up killing someone and and that's actually repeated in simeon brown's own story he he has a, a patch on one of his eyes he lost one eye because it was gouged in a racist attack that's what the stone face is the stone face is the face of uh, the racist who attacked him it's the face of, of of inhumanity and and hostility so certainly gardner smith drew upon elements of his own biography. Simeon Brown in the novel has, is, is involved with a, a young woman who is Polish, she's Jewish, she's a survivor of the camps. My sense is that she is probably inspired by a, a woman who actually uh, existed, who was a Jewish woman who had been a lover of Richard Wright, and William Gardner Smith stole her from Richard Wright. I'm fairly certain that's the woman on whom Maria is based.
0: And kind of the, the center of the novel is this question that an Algerian in Paris confronts our protagonist with, how does it feel to be a white man? Tell us about how that arises. Well, you
3: know, it's, it's not a question that, that I think uh, an Algerian in 19, in, the, in 1961 or 1960 would have posed in quite those terms. He probably would have said, how does it feel to be a Frenchman? How does it feel to be a Westerner? But I think it works in a very evocative way. In effect, Simeon Brown is someone who is tasting freedom for the first time, but he discovers that, that there are other people in Paris who suffer the kind of discrimination and oppression that his own people do in, uh, back, in, back in the United States. And through a series of, of encounters, he becomes very shaken by the thought that the freedom that he enjoys there. Is what Tyler Stovall, the historian who's also written about this book, calls "white freedom." Um, it is the, it is a freedom enjoyed by white French people and not enjoyed by people from the colonies. In this case, by 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 Algerians, and uh, it's an Algerian um, who, after a scuffle, says to him, "How does it feel to be a white man?" Because the police approach them, the police uh, refer to him um, in the in the formal vu but to the Algerian in the in the informal too and uh, they also take the Algerian away in a, in a, in a, in a police car and uh, Simeon is, is uh, free to go. Uh, so he sees that the treatment that he experiences there is, is very different from, from that of Algerians and the Black American writers he knows are happy to enjoy that freedom and they don't want to put it at risk. And for him, it becomes an ethical crisis, becomes a choice. Do I stand with the Algerians or do I stand with the French, with French whites? Eventually, of course, he uh, discovers that there are French people as well, non-Black, non-Algerian French people who are fighting for Algeria's independence, the people who were part of what were known as the porteurs de valise, the baggage carriers, people who helped the FLN. And so we meet those people as well, and we see that the solidarity that is forming um, in Paris for Algerian emancipation crosses racial lines.
0: So when, when he finished this novel, what kind of a critical response did it get in France? Well, it got no critical response in France.
3: Because it wasn't published in French. All of his other, all of William Gardner Smith's books were published in French, except for this one. And uh, the reason I, I believe is not simply that the book explores the topic of Algeria's revolt against French rule, it's also that it's the first novel that um, discussed the massacre of Algerians on October 17, 1961, when the Paris police prefect Maurice Papon, who was later revealed to have been a war criminal um, in Bordeaux and to have overseen uh, the deportation of 1,600 Jews, presided over uh, the killings of Algerians who were thrown into the sand, who were killed in police quarters. This was in the, in the context of, of a, of a demonstration, a peaceful demonstration organized by the FLN against a police curfew that applied exclusively uh, to Algerians. This is the first novel that breaks the taboo. Um, it was only in the 1980s that Didier Desdanks, a French crime novelist, published a novel about the mystery of what happened on the night of October 1961. So it's my sense that you you simply could not talk about these events in fiction at the time. And perhaps the French also thought, who was this guy to write about October 17? Mm-hmm. He's an American after all. Mm-hmm. And so the novel did not appear in French. There was no discussion of it. And it's only this this October that the novel will appear for the first time in French.
0: In contrast, in the United States, he had quite a prestigious publisher, Farrar Strauss. Uh, how did the book do here? I believe that the book
3: received uh respectful reviews so far as i've been able to discern but but gardner smith was never uh, a household name my my guess too is that the somewhat exotic setting and subject uh, made it seem uh less than urgent in 1963, a year before Freedom Summer, although Simeon Brown eventually returns to the United States to fight on behalf of the people he calls America's Algerians, Black Americans mm-hmm. uh, fighting for their, their own freedom. Um, in many ways, um, I think the book was too prophetic of yes. trends that would only occur later. For example, this is a book that imagines the Black American struggle for freedom in relation to Struggle for freedom on the part of colonized peoples. And in a sense, this is a book that helps give birth to the idea of the third world. But that term was really not in, in very much in currency at the time. And, and this is a, a few years before the, the Black Panthers arise and you know quote you know, Franz Fanon and, and talk about Black Americans as an internally colonized people. Gardner Smith was was um, was uh, exploring these themes years before.
0: Getting back to real life and biography, James Baldwin returned to the United States to to become a civil rights activist in 1957. Did William Gardner Smith do the same thing? Uh, He did
3: not. Uh, Unlike Simeon Brown, who returns to the the, the United States uh, to fight with uh, America's Algerians, uh, Gardner Smith packed up his bags and went instead to Ghana, and worked with the Nkrumah government and spent time with Maya Angelou and and, and Malcolm X and was there until 1966 when he was forced to leave um, because of the coup against Nkrumah. William Gardner Smith um, only returned uh, once uh, to the United States um, in the late 1960s. I believe it was in uh, 1967 or 68 um, after there had been many uh, urban revolts and he, he returned to see his mother whom he hadn't seen in 16 or 17 years, and also to do some reporting that uh, turned into a book, Return to Black America, which uh, is a fascinating book that, in my view, also deserves to be uh, reprinted. In that book, Gardner Smith talks to uh, Black power activists, he uh, writes about uh, gangsters in Harlem, and uh, he devotes a great deal of attention to. Black American youth, and uh, describing qualities that he sees as historically unique. And he traces uh, the emergence of this new consciousness back to an experience that um, marked him profoundly, uh, World War II, the experience that Black American soldiers had going to other countries, helping to liberate them, and feeling free for the first time thousands of miles from home.
0: You are responsible for getting this book back into print, To sum up, I wonder if I could ask you to read that conclusion of your introduction.
3: Smith's perspective, a radical humanism, both passionate and wise, sensitive to difference, but committed to universalism, anti-racist, but averse to tribalism, disenchanted, yet rebelliously hopeful, feels in dangerously short supply these
0: days. The book is The Stone Face by William Gardner Smith, originally published in 1963. It's out now in a new edition from New York Review Books with an introduction by Adam Schatz. Adam, thanks for talking with us today. This was great. Thanks so much, John. One more thing, your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Two Dakota bands and the Minnesota Historical Society have agreed to a wind farm and solar array near the Jeffers petroglyphs after the developer moved its turbines farther away from the ancient and sacred site. These petroglyphs are a collection of about 5,000 rock carvings listed on the National Register of Historic Places. They're located west of Mankato. They date back 7,000 years. They're set where the Great Prairie begins amid native prairie grasses and wildflowers and include images of buffalo, turtles, thunderbirds, and humans. The 50 wind turbines would be one of the state's largest wind farms and would be paired with a big solar array, a unique arrangement for renewable energy developments. In June, state utility regulators, who have to approve the project, made it clear they were not satisfied with the plans to locate turbines as close as five miles from from the petroglyphs. The State Historical Society and the Sioux Bands wanted at least an eight-mile buffer. The company developing it is called Apex Clean Energy. The project is called Big Bend. Apex revised the project so that all but two of the more than 50 turbines, will be at least seven miles from the petroglyphs. The remaining two would be about six and a half miles away, which means they're still visible from the petroglyphs. Not really a desirable situation. The petroglyphs are considered sacred to several tribal nations, including the Dakota, Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Ojibwe. This has been Your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast that's it for today's living in the usa our sound editors are will broten and alan minsky our social media maven is renee reynolds kpfk's programming traffic director is matt perez Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.